Hey friends, this is Rick Lee James. I am so glad that you are listening to this podcast today, and I want to ask a favor of you. You know, this podcast is free, and it's always going to be free, but we do have a lot of costs around here. Not only making podcasts, but making new music, paying for production costs, website fees, hosting fees, doing research, marketing, materials, and so much more. And you can help us with that if you visit patreon.com slash James, where for as little as a dollar a month or even a one-time donation, you can help me to continue doing the work that I'm doing. It would mean so much, and it takes such a very little amount of your time. So if you have a chance, go to patreon.com slash James and thank you in advance for any help that you can give. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, a songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more with friends, colleagues, and sometimes just by myself. Now make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes or by tweeting at me at Rick Lee James on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at rickleejames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at Mr. Rogers Say, where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you're here with me this week. I say it's me, and it is only me again this week because I don't have a guest this week. I'm, I have a couple more uh, lined up that I'm going to be doing some interviews with, but for whatever reason, uh, it's just a very busy time, and I know it is for all of you, too, with uh, school, and many of you, like me, are, are at home with uh, online schooling as well as trying to do your regular work that you have to do and uh, it's just been very busy so I've got some calls uh, coming up uh, with some very interesting guests in just a couple of weekends uh, over the next couple of weekends here so I'm looking forward to having some good conversations again but I thought it might be an appropriate time to actually share from a book I wrote a few years ago uh, out of out of the depths a songwriter's journey through the Psalms Um, it's a few years old now and I haven't talked about it a lot on the show but uh, I would, I just feel like maybe parts of this chapter are appropriate to where we are. Um, I, thankfully, I'm, I'm glad to have uh, kind of left the election season behind because I'm, I'm done voting. Uh, so technically, I don't have to like, you know, uh, pay attention to any debates or anything anymore. It's all done. Uh, it's kind of a relief in some way. You can be finished with it and, and move on and think about, okay, now what do we do for the kingdom of God? Uh, got that one thing done. But but there's still a whole lot of um, injustice in the world. And we're still a people who are moving. You know, we, we pass these, these milestones, um, but life goes on. And we continue asking the question, how do we continue to be faithful? You know, what happens in Washington on day-to-day 
uh, doesn't really affect my life in the way as what happens uh, here close to home and here in my own neighborhood and here in my family and and uh, how I interact and how I live out the gospel on a daily basis. So because of that, I, I want to share from, from chapter 9 today. Uh, it's, again, from my book, Out of the Depths, A Songwriter's Journey Through the Psalms. Uh, chapter 9 is about Psalm 130, and it's entitled More Than the Watchman is the name of the chapter, and it's also the name of uh, the song I wrote that goes along with it that, that comes from Psalm 130. And that psalm uh, is actually a song that I recorded live on the album Basement Psalms Live, and there's a DVD that goes with it. Uh, it's a live concert video. Um, but also, um, it's, it's on Hymns, Prayers, and Invitations, the album I did with Lifeway. And uh, I really like the way that that album turned out. And uh, and I, if you haven't heard it, maybe you'll want to look it up uh, before uh, before you dive into this chapter. But I'm going to read from Psalm 130 uh, as I start the chapter today. So here we go, chapter 9, from Out of the Depths, A Songwriter's Journey Through the Psalms, by me, Rick Lee James. And by the way, if you're interested in this book after you hear this chapter uh, maybe you'd want to go to Amazon or wherever you buy books from, Kindle books. Or we do have a few physical copies of the book left as well that you can get. Uh, anyway, advertisement over. Psalm 130, More Than the Watchman. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Psalm 130, New Revised Standard Version. I'm convinced that if forgiveness is impossible for a repentant war criminal simply because his sins are too terrible, then the Christian gospel is a fairy tale, and we might as well abandon the charade. That quote is by Brian Zahn from his book, unconditional. Psalm 130 is the 11th in the collection of what are known as the Songs of Ascents. The Songs of Ascents run from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and each psalm starts with the heading Shir Hama Alath, which in Hebrew means Song of Ascent. Psalms 122, 124, 131 and 133 claim to have been written by David. Psalm 127 is attributed to his son, Solomon. One feature that I personally find interesting about the Songs of Ascents is that they are believed to have been sung by worshippers as they ascended up the road to Jerusalem to attend the Jewish festivals. The majority of these songs are joyful, but even the ones that are not are filled with hope. Before I start to share my thoughts on Psalm 130, I want to get myself into some trouble by taking you back to, to a psalm just prior to this one, Psalm 129. 
There is a type of psalm that I intentionally chose not to deal with on my Basement Psalms album, the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are the ones that basically ask God to hurt their enemies. The major imprecatory psalms are Psalm 69, 5, 6, 11, 12, 35, 37, 40, 52, 54, 56, 58, 69, 79, 83, 109, 137, 139, and 143. When these psalms pray for their enemies, they pray things like the following. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. From Psalm 58.6 May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Psalm 69.28 May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Psalm 109.9 How blessed will be the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Psalm 137.9 Now Psalm 120, Now Psalm 129 isn't considered one of the major imprecatory psalms, but it does have some imprecatory characteristics. The psalmist prays that the enemies of Zion would be shamed, tortured, and destroyed. The imprecatory psalms don't just say, Stop my enemies, Lord. They pray that the enemies would be shriveled up, like dead grass baking in the sun. They pray for disgrace to fall upon their enemies so that they will be friendless and that even God would not forgive them. They pray that their enemies would be utterly cast out, alone, humiliated, and friendless. This is where I know I will get myself into some trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. Just because these psalms made it into Scripture it doesn't mean that Jesus is okay with them. There is never even a hint of imprecatory praying or teaching that we ever get from Jesus, from the Jesus we see in the Gospels. The kingdom of God will never come by force, and Jesus' life was the true example of what it means to love your enemies. I don't believe Jesus accepts any scriptures that promote violence, torture, or dehumanizing of people. When I make a statement like that, like the one above, I need to be clear that I am in no way rejecting Scripture. However, I am not part of a faith tradition that believes in the inerrant Bible. In the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that Scripture was inspired by an inerrant God who led fallible people to write His message. We don't believe that the Bible is filled with errors, but we do believe that Scripture must be reinterpreted in the light of Christ, who makes all things new. I realize that we get some really honest praying in the Psalms, and I know God would prefer an honest curse to a dishonest blessing, but I just don't believe the imprecatory Scriptures are our model for how to live out the Christian life. If you want to follow Jesus, then you have to look at all scriptures in light of Jesus and not the other way around. Now, I don't mean that we disregard the Old Testament. In fact, it's impossible to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. So what I do mean when I say that Jesus isn't okay with certain scriptures, what I mean is that I don't believe Jesus would ever pray that his enemies would have their teeth broken out of their mouths. 
I don't believe Jesus would ever pray for strength to dash the enemy's infants upon the rocks. He might have felt like it, but he never did it. And he never condoned it. How many times in the Gospels do we hear Jesus quote scripture saying, You have heard it said, but I tell you, all scripture is reinterpreted and reimagined in light of the Messiah. Jesus was killed because Jews and the Romans expected a revolution. And there was a revolution, but not the kind that they envisioned. The Jesus revolution is one that tells Peter to put away his sword because violence is not the way of the kingdom of God. The Jesus revolution loves enemies, prays for their forgiveness and redemption with open arms that welcome them back into the family of humanity. This is not to say that enemies don't need to be stopped. Christ would not have us enable abuse. If we are able to stop harm from coming to another, then we need to actively seek to stop it. But I believe Christ would have us ask how far we really need to go to ensure that violence is stopped. This is the age-old question pacifists are asked. What if someone broke into your house with the intent to rape your wife and kill your children? The pacifist answer is, of course, I would stop the man, but only with the force that was necessary. When the aggressor is subdued, that doesn't mean it's my right to rape and kill him. I won't pretend that these are easy things to deal with. I won't pretend that if my family were at risk, that I would be able to do the right thing and love my enemies enough not to kill them. But it is what I strive for as a believer. And it's what Jesus teaches. I frankly don't know how you stop a regime like the Nazis without military action, but I'm also not sure I could say that Jesus is okay with it either. Still, some Christians will ignore clear teachings of Jesus like, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and put away your sword. They will advocate that violence is necessary and God is okay with it as long as it's just. Personally, I don't know what just violence is and I've never found evidence that Jesus does. One more thing before I move into Psalm 129, which is the real focus of this chapter. I've mentioned before that I'm a comic book fan. Since childhood, one of my top 10 favorite superheroes has been Superman. A lot of people don't like him much because they say he's too much of a Boy Scout. and He always makes the right decision, thus he isn't real enough for them. Much to those people's critical dismay, that's exactly why I like Superman. I think we need moral exemplars. As an adult and as a Christian, one thing I appreciate about the way the character is usually written is his meekness. A meek person isn't weak. A meek person is someone who controls their power. Superman seemingly has infinite strength. He refuses to hit enemies with all the power that he has because he knows it could kill or seriously injure them. He holds back for the good of his enemies. He uses his powers to stop their violence and he refuses to let innocents suffer, but he also refuses to use deadly force. I get that he's a comic book character aimed at children, but isn't that something that as believers we would want to instill in our children? In Action Comics number 900, there is a controversial short story by David S. Goyer that to me is a parable about the kingdom of God. I won't tell you the whole story, but here's a summary of it. 
Superman comes to realize that his citizenship to the United States of America is hindering him from helping all citizens of the world. As a citizen of the U.S., his actions could be construed by other nations as an act of the United States government, not simply as an act of mercy. The U.S. government wants to stop Superman, to fall in line, and only help people whom they deem worthy of their political point of view. After struggling with this issue and realizing he is a citizen of another world, literally, he renounces his citizenship as a United States citizen. Truth, justice, and the American way are just not good enough anymore. His duty is to free the oppressed and care for the welfare of all people, not just one nation. When this short story went to press, needless to say, people lost their minds. The internet blew up with controversy. Controversy. One father took all of his son's Superman toys and burned them in effigy. Other people said that DC Comics were a bunch of communists. While I don't think it was DC Comics or David S. Goyer's intention to make a statement about the kingdom of God, by accident, they made one anyway. The statement, Jesus is Lord, is not a religious statement. It is a political one. When you become a follower of Jesus, you make him Lord. You are swearing off allegiances to all other rulers of the world. Easter is a proclamation that there is a new Lord in town and all the governments of the world are now subservient to Him. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God means that you are now a part of a kingdom that loves their enemies and prays for those who persecute them. You are now a part of a kingdom that overwhelms its enemies not with violence, but with the love of God. The statement, Jesus is Lord, is a political statement like saying, Jesus is King. Jesus is president. Jesus is prime minister. Jesus is ruler of all. In praying, thy kingdom come, we are literally praying, thy government come. When you, pray, when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, all other allegiances must fade. This is why, as a Christian, my conscience will not allow me to pledge to the American flag, especially in the house of God. It's the same reason I couldn't pledge to the Nazi flag if I lived in Germany during World War II. I would be making a dishonest pledge because I have given my allegiance to Christ and His kingdom. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that the United States is not. Either Christ is Lord or Caesar is. Does this mean that I'm against patriotism? Well, if by patriotism you mean good citizenship and a feeling of pride in where you live, then no, I'm not against that. If by patriotism you mean standing over and above other countries, waving a flag and chanting, we're number one, then yes, I'm against that kind of patriotism. The thing is that God doesn't see nations. He sees his world. The United States of America doesn't exist in the eyes of God. The United Kingdom doesn't exist in the eyes of God. If you remember in Scripture, God never wanted his people to have a king. That was the will of the people because all of the other nations had kings. God wanted to be Lord and wanted Israel to be the example that there was no other God but Him. Israel was chosen by God not to be the number one people in God's eyes. They were chosen to, they were chosen to carry His message of salvation into the world. That message got lost along the way and Israel became just as obsessed with its borders as any other nation is today. But the lines on a map 
are not visible to God's eyes. With that as my preface, let's move into Psalm 130, which would have been prayed or sung directly after Psalm 129, as pilgrims made their way to the temple in Jerusalem. After praying for violence to their enemies in Psalm 129, the travelers are now praying a prayer for repentance in Psalm 130. We aren't told exactly what the writer is repenting of, but my theory is that if a person has been praying for or taking joy in the destruction of enemies, then he or she will find themselves in need of repentance. It's clear that the writer of Psalm 130 is in a deep lament crying out for deliverance. The pilgrims journeying to the festivals might have sung Psalm 130 like a group confessional. No doubt that they would be seeking God's forgiveness as a way of preparation for feasts that they were about to celebrate. Although Psalm 130 seems to be written from the point of view of an individual, repentance is not just a personal matter. The need for communal repentance cannot be overstated. Because this cry for help in Psalm 130 is only described in the most general of terms, it is a fitting prayer for all of us to pray. I don't want to look at this psalm as a fill-in-the-blank repentance form letter exactly, but it does describe the universal human need for grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. The cry for help I talk about in this in Sorry, the cry for help I talk about in chapter 2 that comes from the mouths of infants is a cry we must all be ready to utter to our Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Lord, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Psalm 130 opens with the imagery of a person crying out from the depths. The phrase, out of the depths, might be associated with the depths of the ocean, which to this day contains some of the greatest mysteries known to man. I've been on a couple of cruise ships in my life, and I'm always amazed when we reach a point where nothing can be seen from any side except for water. It is truly humbling to be in the midst of such vastness. I have often thought of how terrifying it would be to fall off of a ship in the middle of the ocean where no one would ever find you again. A fleet of military vessels with the best radar systems that money can buy would still not be able to locate one person lost in the depths of the ocean. It's just too big to cover. Now that we have that picture in mind, imagine the desperation from which the writer of Psalm 130 is praying. He sees the mess he is in, and there is nothing he can do to save himself. If God does not hear his cry for help, then all will be lost. The depths might also be a representation of how far the psalmist feels like he has fallen away from God. It's always been popular for humans to think of our spiritual lives in up and down terms. Popular terminology describes heaven and being up there and hell being down there. We tend to describe our emotions as up or down, and maybe that's where the psalmist is coming from. One thing is certain, though. Centuries later, we are still familiar with the up-down metaphor from which the psalmist writes. Though none of us know exactly what situation the psalmist was in, we can all relate to it. With this in mind, since this is a song of ascent, I want to emphasize that this psalm is intended to point us to the way up. 
It's the way to get out of the depths of despair that we find ourselves in. The climb to Jerusalem could literally be a gesture of worship as they ascend from the depths to the heights. It harkens back to the imagery of Psalm 1, taking the righteous path and avoiding companionship of the wicked. We can think of this psalm as a change of lanes from wickedness back to righteousness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. The cry of desperation has led into a statement about the relationship that human beings have with God. If a running tally of our individual and corporate sins was kept by the Lord, then who would be able to stand? The answer, of course, is no one. The beautiful thing about God's grace is that none of us can earn it, and none of us deserve it, individually or corporately. This is a confession just as serious as David's confession in Psalm 51. It's not a shallow, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do that type of prayer. We need to understand that this confession of sin is sincere and serious. The attitude of the psalmist is, it's my fault. I did it. Not, I did it, but I have some excellent reasons. It's this type of praying that will actually get us somewhere with God. Thank God that He doesn't keep track of our sins the way that we keep track of sins. This statement that God doesn't keep a record of wrongs is a sigh of relief for the writer and for us. None of us have the ability to make things right apart from grace. We are not like God. I know that for me personally, there have been times when I've held on to hurts that someone else inflicted on me, and for years I couldn't seem to let them go. Even after forgiving a person, I still tend to bring up their sin in my mind on occasion, and sometimes in my conversation. The word that the English will translate as iniquities, or sin, is the Hebrew word avon, which I talked about in chapter 4. It's a kind of sin that is associated with vulgarity and perversion. It's the worst kind of sinning. The worst of the worst kind of sinning. Think again about how different God is from us. We might be able to forgive the little sins of another, but surely not this kind. The Avon types of sins would be sins like pedophilia, murder, or even genocide. Is the psalm actually saying that God doesn't keep a record of these types of wrongs? Because that's the word he is using. While I don't believe the psalmist intends for us to pray this prayer thinking that our sins won't be followed by consequences. All sin has its price in this life or the next. I think that what the psalmist is emphasizing is that God is not gleefully waiting to pounce on us when we do wrong. God isn't sitting around writing down all of our wrongs so that one day He can hit us with a lightning bolt. That is the kind of God a follower of Baal might find. But we see no trace of that kind of pettiness in the Father of Jesus Christ. With Him there is forgiveness. Praise the Lord. St. Augustine wrote the words of verse 4 on the wall of the room where he lay dying. But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. The hope that we have in serving Christ is that He knows the depths from which we cry out. 
The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest statements of our faith, boldly proclaims that he descended into the realm of the dead. Call it what you like. Hell, Sheol, Hades, the pits, or the depths. Our hope is that God is big enough to rescue us even from the lowest of places. Again, the implication here is not that God will just allow mankind to get away with anything, but that forgiveness belongs to the Lord. It is His right to forgive if He wishes to. And Scripture tells us that He is merciful. May we all learn to be like Him. He has the authority to forgive those who are willing to seek it. Forgiveness is with the Lord, and if we wish to be with Him, then we must also learn how to forgive. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. The psalmist is not simply praying a rote prayer of forgiveness and then going on his way. There is a sense that he is so sick of his own sin that he will do anything to have it cleansed. By saying repeatedly that his soul waits for the Lord, he is not talking about the platonic soul that Gnostics believed would go to heaven after this mortal life wastes away. Gnostics were never persecuted, but Christians were. Gnostics believed that following God was all about praying a prayer so that your soul could be saved and that you could go to heaven when you die. The Roman governments didn't care what happened to a person after they died. The Roman government just wanted their allegiance in this life, so they left the Gnostics alone. Christians, however, were persecuted because they didn't believe that following God was about going to heaven when you die. Christians believed that God changed everything in your whole being. They believed that God had so completely renewed them that they were entirely His, and they could no longer say that Caesar was Lord. Lord is a title that belongs exclusively to Jesus. The Christian and the Hebrew view of the soul is the nephesh, the life force, your whole being, the flesh, the blood, the guts, everything you are as a person. Christians don't believe that we have a soul. Christians believe that we are a soul. The psalmist shares this belief and emphasizes that his entire being, his life force, is waiting for God, hoping in his word. The theological use of the words wait and hope is, recurring, is a recurring theme of the books of Isaiah and the Psalms. These verbs are used together to emphasize trust over a period of time. It has a sense of enduring the present until a future date. It's a trust that God can save us right now, but we may not see it happen fully until a future time. So in trust, we wait. The psalmist is saying, God, I am so desperate that I will wait for as long as it takes to experience your redemption. Like a watchman waits for morning. Without sleep, I'll stay up all night and pray if I have to. I won't move. I won't speak. I won't eat until I know for sure that I've heard the word of the Lord. I will be patient, God, but I want you to know that I am serious about this. My soul, my whole life is held in your hands. I place my trust in you completely. Pray through is a phrase I grew up hearing in the church, but I don't hear it very much anymore. I used to hear people say things like, we used to wait and pray around the prayer benches in our churches until we prayed through, even if it took all night. It's a shame that we don't hear that kind of emphasis on waiting for the Lord anymore. I get this really strong image in my mind when I read Psalm 130, that the psalmist is doing this very thing. 
I sense that he's willing to do it for as long as it takes, too, with fasting and deep seeking after God. The implication is that the psalmist will wait and trust in the Lord all night, all week, all year, and all life through, if that's what it takes to hear the word of the Lord. We could use more of that kind of commitment from our people today. It's hard to think of very many things in life that we would deem important enough for which to stay up all night. When my son Alexander was being born, my wife and I were were most definitely up all night doing whatever it took to usher our child into the world. It was not an easy task as as my wife or any mother will tell you, but what we were waiting for and expecting was worth every sleepless moment. Another human being for whom Christ has died was being brought into the world and this one was entrusted to us. This was worth staying up all night. There are somber occasions that keep us up all night as well. Anyone who has stayed up at the bedside of a dying loved one for countless hours through the night can attest that it was important to be there until the end. There is something sacred and profound when you are with another person at the end of their life. There is a reason that the family is called in during those final moments when a life that is precious to God is ushered from this life into the next. I doubt any loved one would ever say that they regretted staying up with their loved ones who have passed on until the end. It was important. Somewhere in between those life and death moments of our lives, If we are honest, we will find ourselves wrestling through the night with our God. We will be so desperate that nothing in the world will be worth missing out on what God might want to say. If it is forgiveness that we need, then there's no amount of food, sleep, or entertainment on TV that would be worth missing out on the grace-filled moment when you know for sure that God has removed the weight of your unforgiven sin. God help us to be like the night watchman who wait for the morning. On a rare occasion, we may find that we are up all night, resisting evil with all of our might. Maybe we are entertaining a dishonest solution to a problem at work. Maybe we are struggling with thoughts of acting out a marital infidelity. Whatever it may be that keeps us up all night, it might be helpful to remember this. Sin is not an activity to be resisted, so much as it is a distortion of a good thing. Any sin can, and most likely will, look like a good thing to the person who desires to commit it. Sometimes it is subtle, but the Holy Spirit of God will not stop prompting our hearts about sin in our lives. The longer we deny the sin in our lives and leave it, refusing to deal with it, the harder it will be when we actually do. All this is to say that there is nothing worth forfeiting peace with God. If even as you are reading this chapter you sense that the Holy Spirit has dealt with some issue in your heart, the best thing you can do is put the book down and seek God on the matter. The good news is that the Lord takes no joy in holding our sins over our head. He desires our wholeness, so if it takes all night or if it takes five minutes, deal with it. If what you are doing costs you peace with God, then you are paying too high of a price. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is a great power to redeem. It is He who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. 
Psalm 130 closes with an eschatological tone that is unusual for the Old Testament. It declares cert with certainty that God will completely redeem His followers in the end. The theme that we've already seen in the Psalms of God's chesed, steadfast love, shows up again, telling us that with the Lord is steadfast, covenantal love. The Psalms turn from a personal prayer into a prayer for all people of God. This is a declaration of faith, not a question of it. God will redeem His people from their avon, iniquities. Grace is the defining characteristic that makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. We believe that no matter how heinous the sin is in our lives, God's desire is to help us find our humanity again by redeeming us, forgiving our sin. The forgiveness God gives is better described as God's redemption because He buys us back from the junk pile. His is not a mercy that says, You're forgiven, run along now, and come back when you sin again. No. Or as Paul would say emphatically, Meganoita. That's a Greek way of saying, in the most emphatic way possible, May it never be. That's not the way God forgives. He forgives us and empowers us to be more than just sinners. We may still be sinners, but when God gets a hold of our lives, we are never just sinners again. We are God's people, redeemed by His grace, empowered by His Holy Spirit, and we are no longer slaves to sin. We are a freed people, and sin is no longer our master. God is. Not long ago, my parents, Randy and Mary Jane James, made a long drive over from their home in Indiana to visit us at our home in Ohio. Our guest room is down in the basement, and when the day of visiting together came to an end, they made their way down to the room below. The next morning, my mother wanted to get an early start on the day and headed upstairs to use our shower. Unfortunately, when my mother got to the top of the stairs, she couldn't get the door open. She claims that she pulled and pushed and pulled and pushed some more, but that the door just would not budge. In a panic, she hurried back down to my father, who was still in bed, saying frantically, Randy, they've locked us in. My dad kind of gave my mom that loving old brother look that he gives her when he thinks she's said something silly. He calmly walked up the stairs, turned the doorknob, and opened the door as easy as pie. My mom asked me later why we had locked them in that morning, and my reply was, What? I was baffled by your question because we don't even have a lock on that basement door. It would have been impossible for us to lock them in. We chalked it up to another long line of funny incidents that have happened to my mother over the years. I tell that story because I think a lot of us view our relationship with God like my mom with that door. We are convinced that the door to forgiveness must be locked for us. That there is no use to try if the journey seems a little difficult. But that just isn't true. God hasn't locked the door on us. In fact, we are told in Revelation 3.20 that He's standing at our door knocking hoping that we will accept his invitation to dine with us, an act reserved for close friends. We don't tend to eat meals with our enemies, and God doesn't view any of us as his enemies. His table is open, and his arms are open wide. The only lock that is on the door between us and him is a lock of our own making. We are the only ones who are keeping us out. Now, when you read a chapter like this, you may say, Rick, you are getting a little preachy. Well, I am a preacher and the son of a preacher, so I guess that's to be expected. The fact is that you may hear these words I've written and begin to feel some resistance to them. 
Resistance is a pattern of avoidance that was first noted in psychotherapy. A therapist would explain a pattern like this. A patient will come to them saying that he or she wants help for a problem they are dealing with. As the therapist begins to zone in on the problem and its causes, the patient will begin doing everything they can to avoid facing it. Patients have been known to get hostile or even violent in a state of resistance. They will call on the therapist, they will call the therapist a quack, tell him he's making things up that aren't there, they will lie, and they will do everything possible to block and evade the problem. Resistance in psychotherapy is defined as a pattern of behavior that blocks or delays the therapy, even if the patient really wants help. If you are feeling it all this way in reading this chapter, then it means that what you are reading is touching something that you might not yet be ready to handle. My advice is to push through it for all you are worth and deal with God on the matter. The fact that you may be experiencing resistance could very well be a sign that God is working and wants to do something profound in you. Maybe you should just pray this psalm or, or sing it. I'll sing along to it on my album. The best way out of the depths is to cry out to the one who hears us. He has no lock on his door, and his desire is that you won't either. Lay your weapons down. Stop resisting and seek the Lord. With him is steadfast love and power to redeem. May God be with us as we make the journey out of the depths. None of us are so far that the grace and forgiveness of God cannot reach us.
for the morning So does my soul wait here for you, Lord I don't want to move, I don't want to speak Not till I know I've heard from your word this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, follow my blog, and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement. Better yet, even a book signing in your neighborhood. You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.